Hello everyone, today we had on Mr. Kerwin and Flat, known sometimes by his social media handles of Rugby Strength Coach. Years of experience coaching rugby or the strength and condition side of rugby at the elite international level from his few years in Argentina. He's since moved into American football and now focuses more on the private education for strength and conditioning coaches through his Strength Coach Network Forum. Damien, what are some of the things you took away from today? I suppose uh, some of the big uh, things that I enjoyed were his approach to coaching coaches, you know, on helping people to develop their own critical thinking and uh, analyzing of the work of what they are actually doing. So through the uh, Strength Coach Network, uh, obviously it's a network of coaches who can communicate and chat and share ideas. But a lot of what I would have seen on when, during my time there were people, especially younger coaches, maybe asking direct questions and him kind of coming back to them and getting them to piece their uh their 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 question out a little bit more and get them to think about it and almost come to their own conclusions without you know from his experience which i think is huge from a coaching perspective um that kind of armor on the shoulder as opposed to you know being given the signpost and go just go this way um and yeah so uh, i enjoyed that bit of a chat and just about some of his own experiences his own work experiences his career I, like this career the strength conditioning career is it's an unusual one it's uh it's a bit uh, it's a bit confusing for some people it can be a bit daunting to look in at from the outside uh or to plan so um you know to see how somebody can move around as he has with those interesting for uh, for me there yeah one of the main reasons i asked him on a few months ago now was just i like how he thinks a bit differently around the way we coach or coach support physical competencies for our sport that's not always the traditional practices he stops and asks is this the best way to do it is there a better way and how can i create that better way and the way he creates that around mental models and working from the final scoreboard backwards say well you know this doesn't actually contribute maybe we should be focused on something else instead um and just some of the learnings from that he also spoke a little bit about current coach accreditation pathways we would like to say they were entirely his views we were trying to stand back let him air them and to be honest in the interest of equality we probably should get someone on from the UKSC at some point in the future to to give their viewpoint on all of that as well without further ado let's uh, let's jump on into today's episode enjoy all right after a bit of scheduling wizardry we finally got Kieran here who's living a double life as a part-time internet troll, part-time doing uh, internship in his local high school there to try and get a bit of experience to hopefully go on do a bit of coaching in some other sports outside of rugby. Formerly known as the Rugby Strength Coach, I, uh, I see you've stuck to the Twitter handle, but are you going to just branch down to the Strength Coach or something like that going forward? It's too lucrative. <laughs> Have you trademarked it? Nah. Bro, I can't even get a fucking blue, blue check mark. <laughs> you not? You're, you're too controversial I've, I've tried twice I've tried twice and they won't give it to me it's bullshit yeah. Yeah. Care, if you, just want to give us a little bit of background I would assume most people in SNC have heard of who you are but just you know some people may not I know you from your own well really from being Argentina because you beat us mm-hmm. in the Rugby World Cup back in was it 2015 I think yeah, that's yeah. where you came to prominence around here for me anyway before that, you'd largely worked in rugby and recently trans- transitioned into a bit more American football. But just kind of a yeah. brief synopsis of how you ended up where you are. So, yeah, I mean, uh, wanted to be a professional rugby player. 
realized to my horror at the age of 15, I was a slow twitch, chubby, five foot 10 white kid with no skills and no bravery. <laughs> so uh, that was not going to work. And I had a brief attempt to do a psychology degree my first time at university, promptly quit. And uh, since then, I've been either in educational coaching ever since. So I did, you know, undergraduate degree in sports science, switched to a master's degree. Um, so I should say I bombed a bunch of interviews fresh out of university. So I was not able to get an internship, became a garden variety personal trainer whilst pursuing my master's degree. And let me think. Yeah, so the end of the second year of the part-time master's degree, I got an internship at London Wasps. I spent two and a half years there where I went from intern, uh, academy assistant, head of academy, threw my toys out the pram because uh, uh, I didn't get hired to work in the first team with Dan House, but I love Dan. I'm still friends with him. I went to Rotherham. I did a stint there to put the adult rugby on my CV. Uh, flew to Sydney because my ex-girlfriend is Australian and I decided to be poor and tanned as opposed to just poor. Um, and then I got very, very lucky. I got asked to fill in on somebody else's behalf with the Argentinian national team for the rugby championship in 13. And they uh, were sufficiently impressed that they asked me to stay on. But I actually ended up taking... Um, the head of academy role at Sydney Roosters because it was on my doorstep and, you know, very high profile club, more money or, or, you know, on paper, perfect job. Turned out to be a nightmare and quit. Through more dumb luck, managed to be my own replacement for the Argentina gig because whoever they had, it was Toomsy, Chris Toomes, they'd hired him to do it. He ditched that and went to Seattle. So then I became my own replacement. And I did that through the end of the World Cup for a variety of reasons. I couldn't stay on with them. I signed with Ealing in the UK, but then as I was waiting to take on that contract, I got a pretty big offer to go out to uh, Japan. So I went out there for two years to cash out and it kind of sapped me of every bit of joy for rugby that I had left. So I thought, fuck this, I'm going to go work in the NFL. So it took me a year to jump through the hoops, get the visa, blah, 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 blah. And I came over to work at the University of Richmond, uh, start again at the bottom. I was making $14,000 a year. Um, so my pay cut was over 200. <laughs> I um, promptly got my son's mother pregnant. We had known each other for six weeks in Tokyo. She came over for a week's visit and our son was born almost a year to the day that we met. Um, and then around that time, I was like, well, I needed health insurance. So I went to William and Mary. I also went to work there for Eric Corum. He's probably one of about 10 people that I could let myself work for in this field because I'm stubborn and think I know more than everyone else. And Eric's, Eric's one of the people that knows more than me, for sure. And I actually put this piece out on Medium last October, if anyone wants to kind of like break down as to why I left. But I left coaching in October. Well, let me say, I left full-time coaching in college sport for now in October mostly due to being present for my son also for the money you know 60 hours a week for capped income versus what i can do for myself i make a lot more working for myself now i'm pretty lucky in that regard and um being able to work on what i want 
say what I want, think what I want, do what I want without hurting anyone. It's it's much more to my taste. So that's what I'm doing right now. And as you mentioned, I'm I'm volunteering at high school just to stay relevant. Just looking back over all that, and I remember yeah. going through your email course on how to go about getting a job and starting out yeah. in the industry and all. How much of moving from one job to the next, moving up in terms of salary and back down again and across sports and across countries, how much of that is down to experience, hard work, luck, skills, and luck a bit again, but also contacts or a combination of them all? I've been very lucky. You know, I... I've questioned myself a lot as I get older. Like, if I started at the very bottom again tomorrow, would I be working in international rugby after, or, you know, five years after graduating? That's fucking soon. Like, I was working in international rugby three years after starting my internship. Some people interned for three years. So I was very, very lucky. But, um, at the time, there was never a doubt in my mind that I was going to get there. Zero. Didn't know when, didn't know how, didn't know if I was going to do it first time. But it's like, whatever barrier was going to be put up in my way, I would find out the reason I failed. And that's why I went to Rotherham. Get rid of it. He said, oh, we have, you know, London Scottish overlooked me. Doesn't have adult experience. I was like, okay, fuck you. Took a pay cut, went up the M1. See you later. Um, and the network, of course, you know, my the only job I've got uh, in my entire career for applying cold was the internship. Every other job I've been invited to apply or given the job. So it's it's a huge, huge piece that can't be overlooked. Um, certainly moving around helps in my experience. Because you ever heard that joke where is, oh, you know, like the, there's like a joke where it's like oh Gary the goat fucker it's like you fuck a goat once you're Gary the goat fucker doesn't matter what your achievements are when people's perception of you is fixed they got you in a box so if you go into a new team and you're the wet behind the ears intern fucking up making mistakes and you're there for five years how much better are you going to be way better right Guess how they're still, still going to perceive you. Yeah, you're they're still, still going to perceive interns, you as that yeah. fucking intern. And that has significant impact on what is they what it is they think your value is, what they're going to pay you, the responsibility they're going to give you, and how people think about you in the field, in my opinion. And it's a lot easier, in my experience, to start afresh and dictate people's perception of you from the get-go. And the impact it has in pay that I really think there is no middle ground. Either you're going to be a lifer where you just like hunger games. You rise up the ladder, everyone else leaves and you end up getting the top job that way. Or my, my preferred way is to move every two to four years. And most of that movement was due to developing that network, getting to know people. How much of that was a conscious effort on your behalf at the start of, Huge. I really need to, I, I really need to, and you were very conscious of that very early on, or did you start developing? No, no, no. I, I, had a, I had a friggin' chip on my shoulder about it. Like the academics always came easy to me. And for whatever reason, I'd got the idea in my head that oh, if I'm good enough, I'll get hired. And if, if my skills are good enough, I'll get hired. 
of course, it's absolute bullshit. You know, all things being equal, people want to do business with those that they know, like, and trust and all things not being equal. They still want to do business with those people. And a real example that happened to me, I went for a job at London Scottish and I, I, I thought I interviewed very, very well. And they said, oh, you know, we thought technically you did a better job of interviewing for the role, but we've decided to go for insert coach. And the head coach was the best man at his wedding. So <laughs> I, that really pissed me off. And I thought never again will I be the guy that technically did better at the job interview, but didn't have the connections. Because it's a, it's a false dichotomy to say that you have to be one or the other. You, if you want to be the, the PhD that everyone thinks is a dick and doesn't have a job, that's bad. If you want to be, oh, the boys love him and you're also a terrible coach putting your athletes at risk, that's also bad. So it's a false dichotomy to assume you have to be one or the other. You have to have both. And it's just the way that humans work, which is humans are so paranoid about being wrong and the scrutiny of being assessed on their own judgments they outsource their decision making to those around them what's the first thing that you do when you buy on amazon you look reviews bingo what do other people say about this oh they like it i must be right <laughs> when you hire a coach where's he worked because you, you just immediately hitch whatever positive mm -hmm. associations you have with that logo or brand to that coach. Oh, he's worked for X. He must be good. Even though there's fucking morons at every big name team. <laughs> Go through the reference list. Who's he worked for? What do they say about him? I keep saying him. It could be her. It's all these things where you're looking to outsource your decision making so that you don't have to think critically. And you can sail with the wind and accept that fact and use it to your advantage or fail <laughs> and yeah. i've tried both i've tried both we're going to come back to that critical thinking point in a second but yeah just speaking of being wet behind the ears and new to somewhere when yeah. you went from having six eight ten years in rugby into yeah. american football how did some of the other coaching staff and even some of the players perceive you like largely went look i assume you just went in purely as a strength coach and yeah. strength is still strength but even still coming from another sport are they a little bit like is he going to get us like lifting lineouts or something? Or what even is rugby? America. Well, no, that's not fair. No, I will say it. America and football in particular is such a fucking echo chamber where the world of the world does not exist outside of the borders of America. So it had to be, you know, I've been at jobs where it had to be spelled out to football coaches, staying humble, what I had done in rugby and the level that I had done it on and what I had been paid to do it. And they were like, oh, like they just thought like, oh, you know, I'm here on work experience and it's my first job and blah, 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 blah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's frustrating, but it's understandable. But, you know, I'll, I'll give you a real example. Like now, I mean, what I'm doing right now with the high school, I'm not actually coaching. Well, I'm, I'm assisting in the gym. I'm not designing any programs. Like the biggest piece that I have is actually coaching the, the contact and grapple skills, which is not my, my classical like training background, but grappler, done a lot with USA football, developed a grapple curriculum at Toshiba with Tom Farrow from England Sevens. 
and just, you know, demonstrating this, they looked at me like I'd discovered fire. So it's, I actually thought about this this morning, which is a lot of people think that your ability as a coach is going to have a direct impact on how productive you are as a coach. When in reality, it's what they'll allow you to do or what you can persuade them to allow you to do that has the greatest impact on your productivity as a coach. And objectively speaking, could I go into that high school tomorrow and say, right, I know more than you change this, 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 probably I could. They're going to think I'm a dick though. And that would be a dick move. So of what I do is I stand in the gym and if you ask me, I'll give, you know, I'll demo something, give my opinion. I'll coach the boys up. And it's just that it's the, the strengthening of the relationship. That's something we've actually chatted about ourselves a bit is yeah. sometimes the struggle to actually get contact time. I think in rugby and American football are far more generous with the time they give to the physical end of things as opposed to oh, here yeah. in, in GA Especially or Especially NCAA. Yeah, because, you know, post-season, the sport coaches can't touch them. But they're allowed so they're to do physical. with you. Yeah, yeah. Like, so from the end of November you've almost got a month with them where they own, they only do stuff with you. So it's like eight hours a week. Then they go back for Christmas. And I want to say you get like a few weeks before spring football. And then still the majority of what you're doing is with you. And then all summer until August, they, the sport coaches can't touch them. So they probably spend more time with you throughout the year. No, we, we find the battle to actually get time the hardest. And it's a case yeah. of, oh, well, let's show that we can get a bit of improvement from, the 10 minutes we have but yeah. will also be really sound so they're a little bit more agreeable like Joe, this week could i maybe get 15 oh yeah work away work away <laughs> and just by doing something good in the time you have but being a sound person off field and being helpful and whatever like that buys you that bit more time as opposed to going to yeah. say of the 70 minutes i need 40 and you can have 30 or dress you can have 30 yeah but by slowly drip feeding in can make a big difference and it's getting your own house in order it's like you have to understand that sport coaches they're superstitious they're anxious they're always they're always the first person under scrutiny so if you just go ahead and say oh can i use up a 25 percent of your time this week they'll be like no fuck you so it's like if they give you 10 minutes you earn 15 minutes by knocking that 10 minutes out of the park where it's like they get every drop of value out of that 10 minutes is that common across rugby and american football have you found or just because you're automatically given more time in American football, it's it, it's not there to the same extent. No, there's a ton of time wasting in American football. Right. You know, there's there's again because America is the center of the world, and you know, there's a Nassim Taleb quote about ninety percent of uh, people navigating their jobs is through mimicry and you know just copying other people. Absolutely, you you will get coaches in American football copy the mannerisms of other people because they, it's just monkey see monkey do. So there's a, you know, a lot of just dumb, you know, why you, if you were to drill down and say, why are you doing this? It'd be like, Oh, because so-and-so school does it. It's like, Oh, you don't know why they're doing it. And then you get a lot of like the, the positive feedback loops of, well, if they do three sets, we're going to do 10 and we'll be three and a third times better. So there's just a ton of shit that gets done that's just dumb. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the levers of change truly are within an organization 
and within sports performance, which obviously is like a subset of the organization. And that really, once you get to a certain level in your career, I think you either make peace with the fact that you are never going to pull on those levers as long as you're a traditional strength coach and you just, it doesn't matter that the roof's on fire. I'm just going to paint this fence and make sure it looks really, really good. Or you take off the strength coach hat and you buy yourself a ticket to way bigger and way more problems to attempt to pull on those levers. And that's where the payday is. From, from that with, I suppose, your, your experience over in the US, do yeah. you, did you find that it was kind of similar in rugby? Um, you know, with all your moving around and that, were, were there coaches, maybe assistant coaches or anything like that, that were very much kind of seeing what you were doing and they were like, you know, over in the corner, writing that down and just like you know that they're, they're repeating yourself especially even like with the with the the strength coach network and and that yeah. I, I i was i was on it up until um probably middle of covid and i realized i was like all right i'm doing nothing here <laughs> i'm twiddling my thumbs but uh so i put a pause in it just for a while but i i see people just asking you direct questions what should i be doing and i i i love your 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 responses are very much like almost along the line of well, what do you think you should be doing you know, and you're, you're kind of well, forcing the thing is, you know, people, people learn more from that. Yeah. I think it's like if you if if, if uh, you just spoon feed and they go off and do it, there's, there's no kind of thought. It's like, well, listen, you tell me what you think you should do. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, you know, based off my experience, what I think I'll, I'll tweak it and stuff like that. But I really think if, if you don't encourage people to go through the exercise of thinking for themselves, you've actually robbed them. It's they are paying to become a better coach, not to be spoon fed. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's more painful for them to do it, but it's more, hopefully more worthwhile. And, and do you feel and if they don't like it, they can always fuck off to science for sport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And do you feel there's a bit of a cultural difference then? So between say your, your, uh, your rugby uh, yeah. strength coaches there and say what you've seen over in the US being, as you said, center yeah. of the universe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the the culture of who is my daddy is way worse in american football mm-hmm. um you 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 get i mean in general in general in sports the sport coach gets way too much power uh in big american money sports unlimited power i mean look at urban meyer urban meyer just got a job at the jacksonville jaguars and the first coach he hires is a guy that got paid a million bucks to go away because of allegations of racism in a league that's two thirds black. Like, do, do you think that hire was made because it was the best thing for the brand of the Jacksonville Jaguars or because Urban Meyer has got carte blanche? Yeah. So when you're dealing with those kind of power structures, what inevitably becomes most important in uh climbing the career ladder as a strength coach your ability to do the job or your ability to ingratiate yourself to people in positions of power and give them what they think is good coaching and they see spn they see a certain individual with a mustache with big arms making a lot of noise on the sideline they see some fucking moron with his sleeves cut off going crazy and they say give me that now if someone's waving 
200k a year in your face and they say give me that are you going to say well actually i think that's dumb and here's what you need so it, it becomes a little bit of a look in the mirror time and uh, see what you really value because you know I, I tell my uh, my interns values are not values until they're tested until then they're just verbal preferences and speaking of things you see that are dumb you have been well known through your rugby days for questioning normal practices and wondering is this really the best way yeah. That level of critical thinking, did that come from looking at the game a bit differently, starting, as Fergus Connolly says, at the scoreboard and working backwards? Or were yeah. you using, like you said, the academic stuff you found easy? So did you have just possibly a better understanding of some of the underlying physiology that went into what actually goes into sport performance and you meshed the two yeah. together to just look at things a bit differently? I wouldn't even say it's the physiology. What it is, is like first principles. Have you read, uh, I've got it right here, Mental Models? Mental models, first principles. What is the job of the coach? The, the head coach or the strength coach? Any coach. Improve your team so that they perform Fucking and win. win. Doesn't matter if they improve or not, win. All right? <laughs> so every decision taken within the organization should advance the team closer towards its stated objective of winning. We all have different areas that we are given the authority to exert control over with the objective of winning, okay? And if you do this long enough and you pay attention long enough, you'll notice that certain things have no relationship whatsoever to winning. So it's like, oh, this kid scores the most and he's a bench warmer. Hmm, clearly that's not the most important thing. Okay, we got a kid here that power cleans whatever. Same thing. And then you realize that actually physical variables are not, don't do a great job of predicting, predicting performance. They buy you a ticket to the dance, you still have to dance. And it's that, you know, flipping over rocks to try and find the treasure underneath. It's like, nope, not this, not this, not this, not this. And yet, if you were to ask strength coaches, like, what's the, what's the, the recipe for winning? It, there's going to be an incredible alignment between what they say influences winning and what they exert control over. And it's just not the case. So questioning that and being trying, trying to find the thing that does predispose to success. I think if you always revert back to first principles and ask yourself, like, does it make the boat go faster? Is this going to help us win the world cup? Is this going to help us win the league? You, you're going to, uncover a lot of answers that are in direct conflict to your beliefs or what you were taught coming up as a coach. And from a strength coach point of view, what does guide or lead to or help with winning? Very little. Like, uh, so technical mastery, yeah? Movement efficiency represents the extent to which you're able to tap into your motor potential. So you can have Formula One car, Stevie Wonder behind the wheel. You can have a mid-engine saloon with Lewis Hamilton behind the wheel. Lewis Hamilton's probably going to win, right? So there's, there's going to be a potential that you can tap into and apply into the sport. You see that with technique and tactics. You can have beautiful, silky technique, but until you're able to be adaptable and solve problems tactically, you're probably not going to win. 
and you see the same kind of like psychologically. So at best, the strength coach merely adds intensity and repeatability to the tactical technical game plan. If those two are not there or the athlete crumbles under intense psychological pressure, you, your contribution to winning is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. So at best, you're, uh, you're increasing the potential to win rather than causing the potential to win. Oh, sorry, rather than causing the winning. Is it really hard to win when everyone's broken? Yes. Can you influence that? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's one of the best things we can do, making sure the best players are available for as much of as much of the games as possible. But you know, um, why why is Kenya not the number one rugby sevens team in the world? Because they don't they play all look rugby. Like they all look like they're built to play sevens. They're tall, they're fast, they're lean. They've got incredible aerobic engines. Why why they're not top of the table? It's still just the culture. Out, but it turns out once you hit a certain level, it's meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. The culture of playing rugby too. Like, do, do they have a sevens rugby team? Do they have pitches? The fact that so many of them live on mountains, it's probably hard to find enough you, flat you ground to actually on, play I mean, Ultimately, it boils down to this. James Smith. The two things that are required for sporting success, culture and population. You have a big enough population, you have a strong enough culture that people will put money into to reward the best performers. And if you throw enough bodies at the problem, those freak athletes that will emerge that don't need any training. Sonny Bill Williams can play pro rugby. He can, he can box, he can do this, he can do that. And you just need to stay out of his way. And then the culture drives the competition and money that picks out those individuals that are predisposed to win. So... If, if you are the most genetically gifted athlete, and we'll just use a broad term, athlete in New Zealand, what sport are you going to play? Rugby. Exactly. If you're from Central Asia, what are you going to do? You're going to be a weightlifter or a wrestler? If you're a freak athlete in Argentina, what are you going to do? With the exception of the type five, you're going to play soccer. If you're from the Midwest of America, what are you going to do? You're going to wrestle. <laughs> so it's just... It's, it's an absolute uh, lottery pick. There's so many factors that go into it, but you really need to make sure that whatever your genetic predisposition is to perform in sport, it has to line up with what the cultural obsession is in your, in your country. If LeBron James was born in Sweden... He might be a handball player and his bank balance would look very different. The fact he was born in America, you know, he's, he's an NBA all-star. I wonder if Usain Bolt was born in America, would he be a sprinter? Would he have been pushed more towards American football uh, or basketball? Football. Or Unquestionably football. Yeah. yeah. The, the worst thing to happen to American weightlifting in track and field is the NFL. For real. Is it just because it pulls college athletes away uh, from, mm. from their money. fields? Or? Money. Yeah. Potential of money, surely. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is, it is a stereotype. There is a degree of truth to it that, um, you know, young black kids are, uh, tend to play football and basketball, and there's a lot of money in those sports. So... 
if someone offered you a hundred grand a year to go be a first rate sprinter or a million to never see an NFL field, you're going to take the million. Um, so yeah, it's just, a, you know, what's the reason? Culture, culture drives incentives. And actually with that, say with, I suppose the, the gym uh, floor where we would have access to, uh, you know, the whole team, um, when you speak of culture there, when you go into a team, do you uh, try to instill some culture in teams or do you try to promote the culture that they have in teams on the gym floors that do you find that uh, like I, I remember like seeing videos from you like lads doing certain lifts and boys be going mental around uh, you know around them if they succeeded in their lift and, <laughs> and all that and uh, like that that's something that I, I would definitely see that a lot of um, I suppose athletes that I would work with they enjoy being in on the gym floor because there's a bit of crack, there's a bit of banter, and you can almost kind of see the, the culture of the club uh, coming out through, through yeah. them there. How, 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 how have you kind of... I think that? it's... You're going to have to have a mix because if, if you're completely imposing your personal style and culture on an organisation, it's disrespectful to any success the organisation's had, but also people are going to resent you. If you allow the organization to completely impose its culture on you, that's a bad idea, especially if they suck, because normally when you're brought in, it's, it's to change things. And certainly you have to have your own individual style. Um, I think to be a good head, you actually have to be adaptable, but nonetheless, I think everyone has their own default mode that they like to work in. And uh, one thing that we were like big on was, I mean, I'm just contrarian by nature. Like I love a fucking argument. And our big thing was like, well, we're not the Navy, we're the pirates. So we used to put on like all this like fruity music on the radio, like girls just want to have fun. So we would post on social media, like, hey, if we beat you, here's what we're listening to. And, you know, the whole like American culture of like grind 300 yard shuttles, do this, do that. We're like, nah, fuck that. We're not doing that. It's fucking dumb. And that a lot of people like that. And I like it. And the thing is, it's like, funnily enough, I've seen and been in teams where the videos that you're talking about, they get seen and they would line boys up outside the gym and make them do that. So, right, you're not coming in the gym until you fucking do it. And then they would like try, you know, fake, fake hype, like North Korea stuff. <laughs> I never do that. Like any, any stuff that like, if, if the energy's not there, great. Mm. That you've seen that was just organic, like with the boys. But I think uh, a colleague of mine, Tony Carney, he was being sarcastic, but he said nothing builds a buy-in like making them hate life. So all this like fake tough guy shit about, you know, treating athletes like Navy SEALs and blah, blah, blah. It's, I think it's bullshit. Mm. You're supposed to enjoy work. And if, if you enjoy being in the gym and training, you're going to give more effort. You're going to come there more often. If, if I can put a smile on your face and vice versa, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can't work hard. <laughs> yeah. 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 It increases the internal motivation to do the work to, that leads to winning eventually. That the players go because they want to go. They don't go because you're telling them to go or you're dying. Oh, it's that. hard enough. It is hard enough without anyone making you miserable on purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you mentioned 300s there i remember you when you were i don't know was it richmond or william and mary you were putting up some like excerpts blinded obviously uh, feedback forms and there was an awful lot of debt to 300s which is a fairly common conditioning tool in high school and college football after we went we went five overtimes against elon now i love elon like Nick DeMarco is a good friend of mine. He's a fucking legend. He's the head strength coach at Elon. And I know he does not condition his boys with any of that stuff. And, you know, we, we had two fit football teams that couldn't close a game to save their lives. So we went five overtimes. We ended up winning that one. It could have gone either way. And one of the boys said, yeah, he goes, I, I could have played another game after that. And that's, you know, opportunities like that when the boys can actually, oh, this does work. Like those opportunities are awesome. I had one of those once with uh, with Michael Leach, who fought me tooth and nail for the first year in Japan, until he went back to uh, the Chiefs and set a record for the back row in the Bronco Test, put 20 kilos on a squat and blah blah blah. And he's like, "Oh, this stuff kind of works." At which point, I fucking pull out my hair and crying. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned this stuff there. Like, to, I'm going to come around to that in a second. Yeah. But when you say death three hundreds, like first of all. An awful lot of players see themselves working really hard yeah. through the likes of 300s and whatever shuttles, mass, this side of the world, whatever it is like that. See, the work is done, we're ready to prepare. How hard was it from your point of view when you went in first to convince the players that you don't need that? This is a more convincing or time efficient way to do it to get you as fit, if not fitter. Like, was that was that a slow process and they just had to see it yeah, I mean, through a series of games? Or Well, I mean, the first argument is... How have you been? What what have you been doing? And you say, right, last year you fucking sucked. You went two and nine. So how's that working out for you? Then it's the Socratic dialogue of, okay, what are you doing? We're doing this. Okay, why are you doing that? Well, okay, why are you doing that? Why, 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 why? And again, to steal from Tom Farrow, if you can't stay with me up to five whys, you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Now I can do that and just give me X amount of time to test my way and let's see if it works a little bit better. Which is that at that point, you kind of have to back yourself as the coach. And questions, but, queries, yeah. maybe potentially like negative feedback. Was that more coming from above? You or players are a bit of both in, the, at, in the early uh, days? It depends on the sport. You know, we're pretty fortunate in uh, Mike London at William & Mary gave us a ton of support. Did, did not try and tread on toes whatsoever. There were other sport coaches at that university that used to cut the legs out from underneath my staff. And I got in trouble for stamping that shit out. You know, I literally had a meeting where the coach said, well, I've been coaching 26 years. And I said, and I don't care how long you've been coaching, you're wrong. <laughs> and she was. And then- <laughs> So, like, leaving aside the 300s and all, what are you doing differently then to condition players that is outside that norm? And what guides your thinking in, des- in designing that? Well, do you agree that, well, let's put, your, put, your, put you in the position of a football coach. I'm going to say to a football coach, do you agree that the way that we should condition for football should be directly related to the metabolic demands of football? And they'll say, of course, it's like, we want to train specific for football, right? And they'll say, yeah, and say, right, okay, what are the demands of your sport? And that's where you lose them. <laughs> what are the time motion demands of football? Most coaches cannot answer that whatsoever. 
let's talk about rugby, GAA, hurling, any of those sports. What are the average demands? What are the average time motion demands of those sports? I'll ask like international rugby union, a heavy, heavy game is like 130 meters a minute. Could all three of us do this podcast right now, jogging 130 meters a minute? I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Sorry, I was trying to work out. Race for life pace, right? So why are they getting tired? It's not the like constant. It's the stochastic nature of those 130 meters per minute. High intensity sporting skill. So what you have to do as a coach is say, right, what does the sport demand? And you start to look at the high intensity sporting skills, the nature of it, the duration, how it's interspersed with rest, uh, how much total actions you're required to perform throughout the course of a game and how that may be broken up, for example, into offensive and defensive drives in football. Football is actually very, very easy because there's a clear beginning and end. With field-based sports, you know, team invasion sports like Gaelic sports, rugby, soccer, all that kind of stuff, it gets a little bit harder, but it's still fairly, you're only interested in the high intensity stuff because that's, what that's what's making you tired. That's what is riskiest. That's what you do most often. And that's what has the biggest impact on the outcome of the game. Nobody is signing a big contract because they run the fastest to get their pants pulled down in a one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> you got to get there, but you're paid for what happens when you get there. So then you start to look at, okay, what are, the, what are the qualities that contribute to that? What are the predictors of success? And it's not your ability to run fast at a medium pace, which is mass. But it's your ability to do the really, really high intense stuff, yes. but also your ability to recover so you can be exactly. as close to that high intensity again the next so, time, whether it be 5, 10, 20, 35, 95 seconds later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the biggest predictor of absolute output speed peak power output. Peak, peak output is your job in rugby or whatever to see how many times you can operate at you know x percent of your top speed no your job is to beat the other guy <laughs> so if your outputs are crazy high you know you get that operational versus max output the game gets easier and more repeatable what is the next biggest predictor of your ability to sustain absolute outputs in repeated efforts? It's the ability of the aerobic system to resynthesize uh, anaerobic substrate and to metabolize byproducts. And then maybe a sprinkling of glycolytic conditioning on top. But those are the two big drivers and they line up the best in terms of a high-low organization of training throughout the week. And you can make very, very strong arguments that that should be the basis of conditioning because guess what? Overzealous sport coaches will do the glycolytic stuff for you. So the idea that you're going to sacrifice the development of speed, strength, and power and aerobic development to live in the middle is just dumb, especially when someone's already doing it for you. No, I completely agree. That's my approach to training as well. That like, yeah. if, if you want players to run at... I'm just going to say 10 meters per second and not take too much out of them. You improve their maximum capacity up to, okay, well, massive numbers now, but 11 or 11.5 meters per second. Yeah, yeah. If they can hit that, that all lower percentages have less of an impact on them then afterwards, really? as opposed to repeating that 10 meters per second effort numerous times. Yeah. Doesn't matter the how many times you can't dunk a basketball in the NBA. It's like, <laughs> you've got to dunk first before you start to repeat that. 
Yeah. And then your ability to repeat that as well. If if you you're tired or whatever, your best way to repeat that effort numerous times is to improve your aerobic conditioning so that you can recover potential power output in between all those high intense efforts. Ideally. Yeah. And you mentioned then the high low model that largely popularized by Charlie Francis. I'm not certain where it came from first. Yeah. But no, basically no, right. where, sorry? That's right, yeah. Did we see the first come up with that, or was it a variation? Of I'm sure it wasn't. I think, if I recall correctly from reading uh, Speed Trap, his model was a variation of what he had been exposed to under Gerard Mack. So that's where the Mack drills come from. Um, so I'm sure he would have adapted his high low model from previous expo- exposures. Yeah. And the high low model is basically looking at. Let's just say, for example, Tuesday and Thursday are his high days or were Ben Johnson's high days. That's where he got them to go as fast as possible, which is very high CNS demand, massive output, everything like that. On the other days, then it's accumulating work at a very, very low intensity and there's nothing whatsoever in the middle. Whereas traditional practices in a lot of sport would have been heavily focused on that middle zone and doing more and more and more of it. Yeah, yeah. Medium, medium works in clothing, not in training. (laughs) <laughs> is, is this like is this trade-off between when you're dealing with very stubborn physical qualities especially speed the level of intensity that has to be exceeded to elicit an adaptation is quite high and it cannot be done every single day two things are going to happen either you subconsciously lower your outputs to protect yourself or you injure yourself uh it's, it's very it can be done on consecutive days, but for very short periods of time, and you have to really recover in between. Um, or, you know, you, you did a high day, now you're recovering and you're interrupting that recovery. So it's like, and you even see this in endurance training, it's like monotony is and monotony and strain in particular are not uh, conducive to good health or adaptation. So there has to be this like wave relationship between work and rest. A lot of that ties back into how we turn the dial, so to speak, between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system Absolutely. and how we're away from between the two. We can only spend so long in one and we need to spend way more time in the other. That's also how like external stressors to life can start to impact how long you spend in one to get. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's largely what the high-low system would have been based on too. It's just, we have these really high stress days and we spend a little bit longer. There's, or was he, lot, was he even thinking uh, of that? Looking back on reading Charlie Francis 10 years after the fact that I first discovered him, the reasons that he gives, some of the stuff is probably wrong. So for real, you look at tempo running, you say, oh, why, why does tempo running work? Charlie Francis would tell you that you're going to get capillarization around fast twitch motor units, which decreases their electrical resistance and blah, 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 you know, capillarization, more blood flow, keeps the tissue warm, lowers electrical resistance. It's probably bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know how he was testing that at the time. Does it work? What tools he had available. Absolutely. Don't, Don't hand back your gold medal out of shame that you didn't get the answer right. If it works, it works. You have to have a little bit of humility about stuff like that. So... With regard to the central nervous system, do I think now that it's very, very hard to actually fatigue the central nervous system? Yes. So the biggest thing that fatigues the central nervous system, the, the level of contraction that you have to sustain and for how, like, for how long is just hours. So in reality, what's probably happening is muscle damage 
where you're getting that sensory feedback from uh, those, those tissues or you're getting things like creatine kinase that's feeding back to the brain. And then that's like, there's that uh, protective inhibition from the brain to shut down force output to those working muscles. Nonetheless, the, the environment has a way of weeding out what works and what doesn't work. And I challenge you to find an elite level sprinter that is going balls to the wall six days a week. What do they do? They all do two to three high days a week where they go really fucking fast. And then the rest of the week, they don't. They have, you know, working on this, working on that. So what, what is clear and what he seized upon and did better than anyone else was undulation of stress, consolidation of stresses into high and low days. And that's the big thing to take away. Last point on this, you mentioned earlier about the coaches, Les, and like the sport yeah. coaches often do that glycolytic conditioning for you through yeah. all of their small sided games. Is your work largely then just focus on either side of it as early as possible, twice a week, I'm looking to push high output. The rest of it is just low level, low intensity aerobic stuff to support recovery between all the other stuff. Train, train what the sport doesn't stimulate. What, what never gets stimulated by sport? Pure alactic outputs. The thing is, even if you have a well-meaning drill, tactical technical tasks, by their very nature, reward patience and timing, which is not conducive to high outputs because you're always waiting, 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 and then you strike. So you, you have to s- stimulate that through direct physical prep work, you know, sprints, throws, whatever. And then especially male athletes, Males have egos. If you pair them up and you say, oh, we're going to, you know, jujitsu, we're going to do a flow roll today. To which my reply is, flow is a kind of tampon, fuck you, we're going to go hard. And then, of course, you get the one upmanship, the, the intensity goes up. So you never really get that, like, super low-level aerobic ability. So that's the reason that you tend to train those two extremes. Everything else lives in the middle. How do you try to uh, coach two athletes in, I suppose, the importance of, say, um, you know, even with, with say the high, high, low, actually the importance of the low stuff, because often I will have, I say, that's, you know, I'm doing my own bit on top of this because they might feel like it's, you know, it, it's not uh, testing them sufficiently. How, uh, how have you kind of um, maybe experienced coaching with that? Just for any coaches that we do of listening who might maybe, ha- who might have the same approach but struggle to, to deal with uh, people who are athletes who just, don't want to shift on through the gears well if i'm being facetious and i've got five seconds i'll tell them that chlamydia burns as well but it's not making you any better <laughs> um the idea that suffering and work is the most productive approach how much money did jeff bezos make during the pandemic 100 billion dollars yeah, yeah how many lifetimes of work as a teacher is that you know yeah. less i'm, I'm going to pick a number out of the air a yeah. million times more productive in terms of his earnings, do you think that it's physically possible for Jeff Bezos to work a million times harder than a school teacher? Of course not. So is work important? Of course. Is it the key driver of productivity and success? If you believe that it is, go work in a sweatshop and see if you become a millionaire. If not, it turns out that the plan really matters. What you're doing and how you do it has to be a big part of that uh, puzzle. And this is why, I, I as well, I love Martin Boucher. 
what's the biggest driver of aerobic adaptation? Tons of fucking volume. That's what links all great aerobic athletes. It's not 15 minutes of mass a week. It's tons of fucking volume. Keep you going. 130 to 200 kilometers a week, is it? Bro, even the one kilometer time trial Nordic skiers do upwards of 70 hours of LSD work a month for a three-minute event. So, I mean, Des Ryan, I like Des as well. He used to take the piss out of us for doing uh, cardiac output work in Argentina. And he's like, oh, I look forward to some low intensity running in the quarterfinal. I was like, fucking have some of that. <laughs> <laughs> now, Martin, Martin's right. If you, especially in soccer, if he, you know, he was at PSG, if he tries to make him get on a bike for 90 minutes, they're going to tell him to take a walk. So if you're in that situation, by all means do it. If we're in a training camp in Florida, which is what we were, we got all the time in the world to say, all right, time for a bike ride. I think that's a really important point that like you see yeah. so many studies comparing six weeks of interval training, six weeks of continuous. Yeah. The six weeks of interval training is always going to outweigh it. And generally, if you're in a four to six week preseason, you're looking as a, as a conditioner to convince the manager, look, I did something, they improved. Knowing yeah. physiology and knowing like endurance athletes, I know that a large volume of low intensity work over the long term is going to make far more of a difference with some of the high intensity peppered in. But that really can be one of the more difficult things to manage in terms of getting that actual time, but also convincing yeah. players management. Two years time, this will make a huge yeah. difference. The manager's like, Every, want everybody contract. wants I don't to care. try twice as hard and have a baby in four and a half months. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like something, yeah, something yeah, I do, yeah. it's just hard limits mm-hmm. to how long things take. Well, I want to do speed again. Well, guess what? Your body doesn't want to. It takes 48 to 72 hours. If I if I say to you, how many hours did you sleep last night? You say, oh, eight hours. I say, right, you need to speed that up. Come back as refreshed tomorrow and having slept four hours. Like, I, I need you to double your effort. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Your body doesn't care. <clears throat> so you have to, oh, we've only got 12 minutes. Well, guess what? You're not going to recover any quicker. But And this is a classic, like, you see it all the time in rugby, all the time in football. Go, 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 go. But you end up, the juice is not worth the squeeze. You've created all of that fatigue with none of the stimulation and adaptation that comes from doing it well. Mm. So it's always you having to just accept certain physiological facts about the body and then, yeah, just get on with it. Like when the sport coach starts looking at you because they're standing around, you just fucking look over here. Yeah, I do get that question right a little bit, especially with tempos um, on the break. And you're like, uh, do some push-ups, that's... We're conscious of your time, care. And the last thing we want to touch on there is your strength coach network, I assume it's probably your main income there at the minute. But it's been a... Only, yeah. Well, no, I got, I got uh, housing, but yeah. The, the high school are giving you lunch there when you call in once a week as well. So that's probably Not even a big that, help. bro. Not even that. <laughs> you know, you get a little carton of milk afterwards, right? Uh... <laughs> You set that up. It's like myself and Damien have both spent time in it. I honestly had to leave because I was spending too much time in there and neglecting my academic studies. It's gone a while. You largely started it as rugby. It still largely is there, but there is an awful lot of benefits to uh, strength coaches. Also, actually, no. You've branched away from that more so now? Oh, I mean, the reason I rebranded it is because I looked at the membership and 75% of it had nothing to do with rugby. Like We have members now in like over 30 countries. So I, I did a quick survey and I think either I stopped counting or I got embarrassed that I was missing people out, but at least 13 of our members are sending athletes to Tokyo this month. Take that science for sport. And uh, of those Olympic athletes, how many are going to play rugby sevens? Uh, Fernando, 
Oh, I actually didn't think any were going to be there. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no. Fernando, <laughs> Fernando is uh, Argentina sevens. Yuri Pegel is going with uh, the Netherlands three, three on three basketball. Serbia three on three basketball. Wade Van Nierkirk, strength coach. Uh, we got a bunch of guys at the Olympic training centers in uh, Australia, the UK, uh, India hockey. There's a bunch. There's a whole bunch. It's good though. It's, it's a pretty diverse group. And when setting that up, what was the main goal? Like, obviously, say, oh, it was a business idea, trying to bring in yeah. some sustainable income. But realistically, in the looking at higher order there, what was the idea behind setting that up? Was it largely around connecting coaches because you realized the value of a network? Did you see a gap in the coach education market? Or was it some kind of merger between the two of those or something completely different? Okay, well, let's bring it full circle. Presumably, you have gone through that phase in your career as a strength coach where... At one point, you thought, fucking hell, if I just get them super, super strong, engrave the trophy. We're going to win the championship, right? Yeah, to, to some, uh, I certainly did. I so, did. So we're, we're, <laughs> a little bit, we're a little bit later than you. Uh, so we have, we, we have your mistakes and uh, other people's oh, yeah, mistakes yeah. to guide us a little bit. So but you definitely go through that. Well, this is going to be the thing. If we can nail this thing, we're going to win. And then you get a big, strong, fit, fast, whatever, and you still frigging tank. And you realize, well, actually, this is no predictor whatsoever of success. Does it help? Maybe. Is it, is it driving success? No, it is not. With that said, without trying to get you blackballed, do you feel that the UKCA accreditation is any guarantee of coaching productivity or career success? I honestly don't know enough about the accreditation, to be honest. I don't know. I haven't gone through it, so yeah. I, I can't say. So what is Practical application of knowledge and skill, network, strategic, uh, or let's say let's say a strategic approach to career development, and I would say in the last two years or so, particularly with a vivid example of COVID, is being financially and professionally robust enough that you can deal with whatever the career throws at you. Now, are we going to have to deal with a global pandemic? Um, Again, shortly, I hope not. Are you going to have to deal with the fact that you can get fired at the drop of a hat? All this stuff. Absolutely. Happened to a colleague of mine, you know, a good, good, good friend of mine uh, was fired on Monday. They brought him in. He's been there a few months, let's say five months. We have concerns that the, the team is not uh, fit or strong enough. And I've been preparing him for this because I said, document everything, you know, have data when they come looking for you. And he said, based on what? I said, oh, it's just the way that we feel. And he's got all the data to show that he's doing his job. And guess what? They fired him. So those are the things, in my opinion, that tend to predispose towards success as opposed to the UKSCA accreditation. And what I tried to do is look at the numerous failures that I had and still make in my career. And then I try and go back and say, right, Let's build that for someone that they don't have to make the same mistakes that I did. And um, so we have monthly lectures. The criteria is you have to make your living training athletes in the real world at a high level. Uh, we have discussion forums. So if you have an idea, you can test it on, you know, a thousand people. You can uh, get advice on how to prepare for an interview, apply for jobs, blah, 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 blah. Like we, I would say probably a dozen people in the last year, we've helped get jobs, helped get internships, interviews, 
we've had people meet up from all over the world, like literally other countries, they'll go to another country, meet an SCN member in their city or this kind of stuff. So that's, that's the gap that I think is there right now that we're filling. Because certainly when I, you know, I was newly graduated with my degree, I was a terrible coach. You know, it took me a long, long time to even work for free. And I'm sure a lot of people out there have got the, their UKSC accreditation or equivalent and realized that it's absolutely meaningless in terms of their professional development, which for an organization that claims to be uh, advocates for coaches, I find puzzling. And I suppose with that then, like in, um, I suppose if you're looking at um, adverts for jobs or, and I know that there's a lot of networking yeah. goes on to get jobs. I, 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 I'm not dismissing that at all because I've been at the, the receiving hand of that kind of a, oh, yeah. a experience as well. But um, I suppose, like, it, do you think there's room there through what you're doing or through what some, someone else is doing to still have an accreditation there to kind of monitor over you know what people are actually doing that i mean being a member of say the sen group is is great it's brilliant there's a ton to be taken from it and a lot of experience there to pull from but that doesn't tell you know someone at the other end that they're actually able to apply this uh so the, the answer is no yeah. just because i would phrase it this way right if you are an accrediting body who do you, which community do you serve? So if you're, if you're the UKSCA as an accreditor, who do you serve? Sports bodies, I guess, the, the actual. Athletes. You serve whoever is consuming the training, right? So within reason, the higher a barrier I erect for you, the harder it becomes for you to get in front of athletes. The athletes receive, in theory, a higher quality of training and you're not letting people through the net that are going to kill an athlete, injure them, all that kind of stuff. Right. So to act as the accreditor or the assessor, you serve the consumer of the training. If I'm an educator, who do I serve? The coaches, because I want you to pass the education. So it's my job, let's say, to get you over that barrier. So as the assessor, your accreditation becomes more valuable and more exclusive, the higher you raise the bar and the fewer people get it. What are they doing right now? They're adding another level to the UKCA because everyone's got it now and it's not exclusive. 10 years ago, it was a big deal. Now it's not, they're raising the bar. If I'm the educator, do I want more people or less people to pass the UKCA? more, more. Yeah. yeah so Nassim Talib talks about skin in the game if we're in a business relationship together when you do well and I do well that's good right mm -hmm. now when you do bad should I do bad yes because otherwise I can play you both ways right okay. <laughs> okay. you know heads heads I win tails you lose that's not a good relationship for you because yeah. you're getting your pants pulled down now mm -hmm. If I act as the accreditor and the educator and say, oh, if you pass the UKSCA, congratulations, I collect my money as the educator, brilliant job, well done. 
if you fail, I can say, oh man, that UKSCA is so prestigious and tough and we don't, we don't let through anyone and blah, blah, blah. So you're controlling both sides of the market. It's like you're cranking up the heat in, in a nightclub and then selling bottled water at you know, 10 euros a bottle. So just the legal definition of a conflict of interest is not purposefully playing one side against the other. It's the potential of a conflict of interest. And to me right now, when you choose to act as both the assessor and as the educator, you, you win whether the coach succeeds or not. Because guess what? If you fail, you're going to take another one and I'm going to get paid again. <laughs> if I'm the educator, how many times do I want you to take the UKCA? One and done. Yeah. One and done. Because otherwise, because then you'll tell your friends and say, fucking hell, I, you know, strength coach network spent this money, got through the UKSCA once and then the company down the street, it takes three times. My business is going to improve, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the, the reason we would never do it is because for coaches by coaches. So we're all about the coaches. We're not going to, it would be like the, you know, if you look at like the stock market, the uh, series seven exam in America that you need to pass to become a stockbroker. The, the, the government body that controls that exam doesn't also sell education to pass them because then you're playing both sides of the market. Mm. So if the UKSCA wants to be the gold standard and say, oh, you're not a strength coach until you pass this, at the very least, they need to outsource that evaluation process to an independent third body because when you critique them in public they'll say oh it's a you know it's a free marketplace anyone can educate coaches and blah 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 guess what who writes the exam so if it's a free marketplace you've got the answers to the exam do you think you've given yourself an advantage to educate people mm-hmm. yeah okay. i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> no to be fair I, I think there certainly is a need for some form of yeah whether it be accreditation or certification or the specific terminology around where exactly you want absolutely, to go. I'm not, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely certain around what is the correct thing there to have in place. I do, I do like that there is, from my knowledge of it, like I said, I haven't gone through it, but from my knowledge that there is a practical component and a theory component, I do think that is also important. Um, yeah. To drive standards, I think it's important to certainly have a failure rate at whatever it is or have standards that need to absolutely, be driven yeah, and yeah. met we'd rob pacey on here a couple of months ago he said they're actually you mentioned to bring in a higher level i think they're bringing in a lower level as well to bridge that gap in between the two because some people do say it's very very difficult to achieve that who still actually have been working as coaches for 10 plus years well, I mean, yeah, tell them they're not coaches uh, isn't fair either yeah for not coaching their way as well yeah that is one of the things i would question is there to say that there is one way of coaching i don't think is is yeah. right either i would question the fact that you have to be a competent olympic weightlifter to be a coach i'm not entirely sure it's that relevant if it's just your way of looking at the overall moving skills of coach again i'm not entirely sure it's that relevant how well you can perform a snatch or a clean jerk to transfer your ability then to coach something on a pitch i'm not again, sure you know, first principles it's like did, did you make them bigger stronger faster fit or whatever Yes. Okay. There's your accreditation. Yeah, I, I've even noticed, like, like my background, my day job. I'm a PE teacher. Yeah. When we went through college, I remember talking to people ten years older than me. 
to yeah. get through the course, they had to be able to swim 400 meters, had to be able to perform gymnastics, had to be able to perform all this stuff. It's since completely changed out. But why do we want you to perform? We want you to be able to teach it and are assessed under actual teaching of it, which yeah. I think is, is the way it should be. We had Shane Cal on, who says he would love to see it move more towards a form of apprenticeship style model. Absolutely. If there was something like Strength Coach Network where they were teamed up with a mentor, who yep. looks at you over your career, you do have still some practical and theoretical aspects to pass, but they're largely learned on the job with some supplementary theory bits on the side. I think it that would be, like be a far better model. It's but like, hopefully it's all just part of the evolution towards that where we are now. It's like law school. You, you go to the law school, you clerk whatever apprenticeship, they train you up. But when you sit the bar exam, it's not that school giving you the bar exam. It's like, right, train you up, cross your fingers, send them across town to take the exam. And then there's that, it's a bit more independence. No, I, I completely agree with that. Completely agree with that. Just pull it back to your Strength Coach Network there. Last one or two before we let you go. Some of the webinars you've had on, any particular highlights for yourself that you learned something from? I mean, Val Nazedkin in 2012 at Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar. So we have all of the CVASPs. I saw him speak in person and I flew home and tore up everything I'd done on my master's dissertation and rewrote it. It was that I felt like a fraud. Um, you know, there's some, some great ones on there. Uh, Buddy Morris, Natalie Berkshansky. Um, there's a lot. I think there's like a few hundred now. So it's like, you know, but I always said, you know, Vanna Zedkin, that was the one that made me feel like a fraud. And I went in just like, all right, I need to start again. And lastly, then, for me, anyway, Damien might help him with one more. Some of the questions posed by members on the forum. What was yeah. something you learned that one person asked and someone else answered? And you were like, wow, never would have thought that or approached it that way. I mean, let me have a look at all the, like, I've probably sent like a few thousand messages at this point. So, I'm yeah, but, but, but this is one you haven't sent. You just, someone posted, someone else answered, and you just stood back and was like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, wouldn't have thought that now. Great idea. Let me see how many thread discussion threads we've got. So I mean, yeah, F strength and conditioning discussion, seven hundred twenty threads, five thousand messages. Educational materials, one hundred ninety three threads, threads, one and a half thousand messages. Career development, two point nine thousand messages. It's like it's quite quite a bit. Um, what I do like is we're we're at the stage now where the the level and this is the great thing as well we have long time members that have been with it from the start like over five years now that when they started they were looking for internships like robin arkel was one of them robin was doing a bit in rugby in south africa and now he's going to the olympics as head snc for india men's hockey like they've, they've got a good chance of getting a gold medal which is friggin' nuts fernando when i met fernando he was an intern at new south wales waratahs He's going to the Olympics with Argentina Sevens. So as our members have hung around and developed along with the site, the level of advice that they're able to dispense to, to new members and help problem solve and things like that, you end up just becoming like a curator and just like guiding discussions because there's, there's a ton of value that other people are able to offer and um, give their opinion on. So it's very, it's very, very 
lucky for me to just be able to sit back and watch it. My my only comment on on it all is as a uh, a young S and C still young if anyone is asking but um, <laughs> that's ambitious now. <laughs> um, How old are you guys? Uh, Thirty one. <laughs> I'm thirty three. Uh, yeah, so it's young, very very young, very young. Um, but yeah, just the biggest thing for me was just uh, I I suppose it's something I do guide to, or maybe fellas coming out of college and stuff. You know, just head in there. You know put your name in, you know, chat to people, ask questions. Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, do you find that, you know, younger coaches are very um, quick to, you know, introduce themselves or how do you find it? Is it, is it much more like, I suppose, you know, you do people kind of edge your way around you as they lurk and just take all, uh, or do you find that you, 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 you manage to make it easy for people to actually, um, to mix and introduce themselves, especially for young coaches who might be coming with a lot of doubt in their mind. Um, you know, uh, how have you found that or have you noticed it much at all? I mean, people, people do look. Part of that is the funny thing you learn, like when you have a business like this, is you have to train people like animals how to use it. Because if you don't tell them how to use it, they won't use it. And just, you know, selfishly from a business standpoint, you want the longest subscription possible. Uh, so that's one thing that we've learned, which is how to help people engage more with the content, how we present the content. Like we have the curated list, for example, we have an onboarding sequence to say, right, go and introduce yourself. If you have a question, ask me, ask someone else, all that kind of stuff. And then a lot of it as well is just... Um, that kind of like natural human tendency to think that the problems that you're facing are dumb questions or dumb problems compared to what, oh, you know, so-and-so is going to be dealing with this problem. And of course, like, I've been very fortunate to have done this long enough now that I like, I've kind of like met my heroes in SNC and they're all normal people. You like, I met Buddy Morris last October. And of course, I'm sat there like fucking hell. It's Buddy Morris, and you know we talked about all the normal stuff. And Buddy Morris has got problems. Dan Paffer's got problems. Stu McMillan's got problems. And it's like you just, uh, on the part of members, I would just like encourage them. Hey, like this is normal. Everyone's, you know, that's past that stage has gone through what you're going through now. It's not a dumb question. And the purpose of this site is to help people get through those problems. And I think once you've gone through it, you have the attitude where, hey, you know, drag people along with you. And, that, you know, if, if anyone ever was not doing it in that spirit, they'd be fucking, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> Money well spent to get rid of them. Kier, thanks a million for your time. Um, yeah, really appreciate that now. And um, people can head over to Strength Coach Network to sign up for all that. They can follow you on all of the socials for some lighthearted banter. Well, the, the spicy memory is actually on my own Instagram. The Strength Coach Network Instagram is fairly down the line. <laughs> and your own one is your own one, Kerwin and Flat or Rugby Strength Coach? Rugby Strength Coach. Rugby Strength Coach. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Lovely. Kerr, thanks a million for that.